0: Welcome to Top Ducks. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Ken Jacobson. Today, I had a chance to speak with Megan Mylan about her film, Simple as Water. This is a beautiful, evocative, meaningful film. Let's hear how Megan describes it.
1: For me, Simple as Water is a love story celebrating the bonds of family. And it's told through vignettes, portraits of Syrian families that we filmed in five different countries, And each chapter looks at the impact of war, family separation, and displacement, all from the point of view of parenthood.
0: I think that's a pretty good description of the film. I would say that it is a film, as she notes, both about the Syrian civil war, but also about family.
2: This is a really beautiful film about Syrian refugees, but it's also a very dark story. And yet, Megan manages to find joy amidst the trauma and despair How did that manifest itself in your conversation with Megan?
0: I think one of the most important things for her is she comes to it as someone who is a recent parent herself. She really foregrounds that experience. You can see that throughout the whole film. The opening of the film starts with children playing with balloons. And of course, there's a lot going on there in terms of hope and aspiration and joy. I think she really felt... It was a way of honoring Yasmin, the mother of these four refugee children, of Yasmin's dedication not only to protect her children physically from all the dangers that might attend them living under a freeway in Athens, but to protect their sense of joy, their sense of possibility. I think that's really, for her, very much rooted in her own experience as a parent.
2: Megan Mylan is a highly acclaimed producer and director. She's probably best known for two films, Smile Pinky, for which she won the 2009 Academy Award for Best Documentary Short Subject, and 2003's Lost Boys of Sudan, which he directed with John Shank, and which won the 2003 Golden Gate Award at the San Francisco Film Festival and a Film Independent Spirit Award. Megan's other films include Taller Than Trees, After My Garden Grows, My Little Friends and Russia, directed with Joel Zito Arajo, Simple as Water had its world premiere at the 2021 Tribeca Film Festival, and will be premiering on November 16th on HBO and HBO Max. In addition, the film can be seen in theaters in New York and LA.
0: If you like this conversation, why don't you follow us, like the episode, leave a comment, or even share us on social media. Coming up, my discussion with Megan Mylan about her film, Simple as Water. Megan, welcome to Top Docs and congratulations on this beautiful, meaningful, and deeply affecting film. Why do you make documentary films?
1: When I first met other documentary filmmakers, I pretty instantly felt like I had found my tribe. I, I love The mix of hats you wear. I love how intensely collaborative and organic it is at one moment, and then quiet and detailed and cerebral at another. So it's just a really good fit for how I am in the world. But I think my driving force is really a sense of urgency to connect. I've always been somebody who wants to know people who are outside my immediate circle and wants to understand. And so I feel in my films, I'm trying as best I can to give audiences opportunity to connect intimately with people they might not otherwise have a chance to meet.
0: Let me ask you about the structure of the film, especially how you move through the film. So the film is composed of five segments covering the stories of four families deeply affected by the war in Syria. First, Yasmin is in Greece with her four children, waiting to join her husband, Safwan, who's in Germany. Samra's husband has been taken by the regime in Syria. She has fled to Turkey with her five children, where she works in the fields and considers putting them in an orphanage. Omar and his younger brother, who was badly wounded in the war, find themselves in Pennsylvania, seeking asylum. And Dia tries to maintain hope for her son, Muhammad, who has been taken by ISIS. Finally, we see Safwan in Germany awaiting the arrival of Yasmin and his children from Greece. You can imagine other structures, for example, intercutting between the stories or starting in Syria and then going to Turkey and Greece and then to Germany and the U.S. Why did you choose this particular structure for the film?
1: When I got started making the film and once I had decided that my point of entry was going to be parenthood and the choices that parents fleeing war and trying to make life okay again, that they're forced to make with bad information, bad options, I started thinking about could I choose one family story and follow it over the course of years or along a journey. And I was just concerned that it felt anemic to the scale of this devastation of both the number of people that had to flee and also just the chaotic global spinning journey and the layers of devastation. It affects families in so many different ways, just displacement and war. And so I landed on this multiple family I wanted it not to feel like a neat or tidy or complete depiction of anybody's story, because you can't do that. I wanted it to feel like a moment in time that we just dropped in. We got very intimate, but there isn't resolution. I felt like if I intercut back and forth between the families, it would imply sort of a false progression and advancement that maybe wasn't there. And that this gave me a chance to get really immersed and also give you a way to feel the dailiness of it, that it's this high moments and just mundane limbo stuck moments as well. And the normalcy of family routine combined with the exceptional locations and lack of resources and all of that mixed together. It was very intentionally fragmented and fractured structure to echo the fragmented and fractured experiences of the people in the film. It allowed us to represent the scale to so many different countries.
0: Just a little background for the listener. Can you just explain when you shot this and what was going on in Syria at the time?
1: I came to this story in 2016 when Syria and the region, but really intensely from the Syrian Civil War, half of the country was forced to flee. And at the time that I really just focused all of my head and heart attention um, without any intention of making a film, just as a human being, I couldn't stop reading news reports. It was family after family who had made it out of a war zone, being forced to negotiate with smugglers to cross from Turkey into Greece to be in the EU in order to claim asylum for their families in the EU. And that was the piece I just couldn't reconcile, how we live in the world we live in. You and I are sitting here talking. We all didn't know Zoom at the time. But, you know, what we can do, and we couldn't manage a way for families that had made it out of a war zone to have safe passage or to keep families intact. That was a moment that just felt like too much.
0: I think it's very easy in the West to think about the exodus from Syria. I'm trying to avoid the word victim, but the exodus from Syria, the refugees from Syria, it's sort of a a nameless mass. People reduced in many ways, dehumanized in some ways, and reduced to their victimhood, reduced to their refugee status. And I think a lot of what you're doing is remedying that. Family, I think it's really interesting because it's something we could all relate to. It's a way in some ways of helping the viewer understand these people as people But in some ways, their dedication to family, I've had to say, is beyond, I think, what a lot of Westerners experience. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder, is that cultural? Is that a result of what's happened in Syria? Both more?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you can measure intensity of family love. I think it's really, you can't measure love, right? I mean, it's so personal, but definitely Syrians, the Syrian culture is very family focused, as are so many of the immigrants cultures that, you know, people who come to the U.S. One of the things that doesn't really come through in the film that struck me early on is that once a couple has children, once anyone has children, you become like Abu, if, if you're a father, or Om, the first name. So I would be Om Jack, mother of Jack. Like your whole definition is as a parent of this child. That was really profound, that connection with family. But I do think it's something very universal. I, I feel like Becoming a mother changed the way I experienced the world. It changed the way I see its joys and its beauty, and it changed the way I see its injustice too. And that's part of what I was trying to bring into the film was that perspective.
0: Let's talk about the title of the film, which comes up with Arabic script beneath it. And it seems simple as water. It in and itself seems simple and yet evocative and elusive, which is very fitting for the movie, I'd argue. But if we could just start with that phrase, I assume it means something in Arabic
1: the title is taken from the title of A Collection of Syrian Poetry, which the full title is Simple as Water, Clear as a Bullet. One of our Syrian advisors, who's a writer and her husband's a filmmaker, recommended it to me as we were searching around for a title that would encompass these five vignetted stories. And what it did for me initially is it just had that elemental, primal, powerful sense to it and the flow, a sense of movement that echoed the power of a parent's love for their child, which is the core emotion of the film for me. It also had layers of water being something that we need is profoundly elemental. And maybe we take for granted until it's gone, like family, something that's so fundamental. So it just felt like it worked without being too specific. There were a lot of names to this baby before we landed on that one. So it just felt right.
0: Obviously, water itself plays a key role in the film. It's a ubiquitous visual element. It's thematic. It's in some ways, even an antagonist, right? It's the barrier to safety. It even is a thief of life.
1: I think it was, I think it was circumstantially. And I think it was something visually that we were looking at. We had a real focus on giving you this dichotomy of very intimate and then always a sense of place. And so we have the family in the port of Athens right on the water's edge. But then even in our U.S. chapter, Omar is back and forth across the Delaware every day, watching ships go by. And then there's a lot of bathing that is is such a nurturing moment. You see the brother in Turkey doing that. And so there were just a few elements that were circumstantially what we got in the footage and what we got from the locations of the families that we chose to focus on. But then in the edit, you start seeing these echoes in your footage. And if you place them right, they start talking to each other. And so water was definitely one of those.
0: Related to that is the ships, the ferries, the trucks, and the transportation that we see in Yasmin's story. And it seems very much echoed when we first see Safwan in Germany. He's at a train station, and you have shots of the train, and you discuss the other boats that we see that Omar and his brother like to watch going down the river. It seems like transportation is very important here as well.
1: These are stories on the move, right? Each of these families had a very forward-focused attitude. They were not wallowing in the moment where they are. Even Dia, the mother in Syria, who we don't see on the move, literally, is constantly pursuing leads on where her son might be. So there's just that sort of forward momentum with all of them. You were talking about like the industrial trucks and ships and stuff. One of the things that I wanted to come through was that here we are being invited into this very sacred space of family, this very intimate moments. But these moments are happening in these bizarrely public or industrial settings. We have this really fabulous sound editing team. I wanted you to be able to hear a mother stroking her child's hair as she helps him fall asleep. But then at the same moment, be reminded that she's doing that in the middle of a massive industrial port in Athens, both visually and soundscape wise. We were always trying to give a very intense sense of place and a reminder that these families were having these very intimate conversations and experiences without any privacy.
0: It seemed like grooming was a big part of this film. Mm -hmm. All the washing, which of course connects with the water, but also There's multiple haircuts given. I think it's the only documentary where I've seen multiple haircuts.
1: I didn't set out to film people at the barbershop. It's sort of what they were doing, but it did reinforce that sort of life goes forward and taking care of the basics and the normal. So it's echoing Yasmin keeping a very clean tent and that there was order and we will bathe and we will groom our hair and we will learn how to put socks on. You have to hold on to some normalcy and some structure amidst all of this. And they're nurturing scenes too. A lot of the film is about nurturing. And even though, you know, with the Germany chapter, it's men, but they're taking care of each other. It's another Syrian refugee on his after hours coming by to give his friends a haircut. It's layers of nurturing and taking care of each other.
0: I really want to dig into Yasby's story a bit. It's probably 20 minutes. And as you noted, in a traditional analysis not much happens there's a lot of sitting around there's a lot of waiting however it contains worlds on the page would be a novel it, it's really an amazing story start with the children your first shot is an interesting shot again i think probably defying our expectations of what this movie is going to be about it's about children playing with balloons it's a joyful scene and also it's about aspiration almost literally you know breathing in and breathing out why did you choose to start with that image
1: I was alluding to that, how much being a mother changed me the way I am in the world. And, and that was my approach to the film. And of course you were first protector and provider of physical safety, but I really feel like my job is equally a provider and protector of joy and a sense of possibility. And I fiercely believe that children should be able to move out of innocence at their own pace. That's not something that happened for these children. And I felt that in my time with Yasmine, that she was determined that despite everything they had lost, joy was still going to be a fundamental part of those children's lives. And as much pain as she was going through, she mustered the energy to be silly and playful and allow them to play with all of these crazy trucks going by and tourists loading on the opening shots for me where they're dancing with the balloons and she's watching. I think she looks like a mother bird. She's just like on it every minute. Then also taking them to the water's edge, to the beach to play in the water after the tremendous loss that she'd had. I'm not sure I would have been brave enough do that so i wanted the film to sort of signal that and also as we all know life brings you that mix constantly right it's even in the darkest times as my family has dealt with losses and we might be sitting around the kitchen table trying to figure out the next move for healthcare or something with really all bad options there's still like gallows humor that comes in and you still make each other laugh and that's what families can do for each other is that mix of emotions i wanted to signal from the beginning this film isn't in a hurry. One of my favorite documentaries is To Be and To Have, which I can't pronounce in French. It's French title. And it starts out, there's this like turtle crawling across the classroom floor. And I always have loved that. If you're in a hurry, go elsewhere, because this is not a movie for you. And so I hope we earn the patience. I hope we there are layers enough that no one feels like it's indulgent and we're moving slowly. But the film does unfold slowly, because I feel like life isn't all banner moments. It would have been artificial. There was a lot of waiting in this film. The two fathers we focus on in Germany would joke to each other that we're smoking and waiting, smoking and waiting. That's all we do is smoking and waiting. And so we had to be faithful to that. And, and I think the the rhythms of the film are faithful to it.
0: You spoke about the scene where Yasmin brings her children to the water and they sort of are going out to this rock. And uh, since this is a film about family, Some of my family responses, my wife was really impressed that she's encouraging her children to like go and swim. And then one of my sons is like, wow, this is kind of symbolic. They're swimming out to this, crossing the water to get to a place of safety. And Was that a proud papa (laughs) moment? Yeah, he had a lot of interesting comments. I might bring up some other ones as well. But yeah. Yeah, My
1: my nine-year-old has now seen the film a couple of times and is still noticing things. It's a film about children their age, right? Whenever I make films that involve children in it, I can remember, you know, people saying, "Oh, I don't know if it, they're old enough," and I'm like, "The children in the film are old
0: enough." I would strongly encourage people to have their children watch this film. It's really broadens their sense of the world. Speaking of children, not only does the Syrian war break apart families, but it really distorts childhood. And we see this especially with Samra's son, Faez, who's a 12-year-old who's having to take care of his family for pragmatic reason that his mother's not there for the broader reason that he doesn't want them to experience the loss of the father the way he experienced the loss of a father. And then we see, I think Farouk is the child of Safwan's roommate. Abdullah, his child, is eight years old. It has to play the role of a 40-year-old, Abdullah's wife says. And we hear about, I think it's Ahmed who is threatening suicide at 10 years old. So we see how it is destroying childhood.
1: I was saying about moving out of innocence, it should be such a right. We should live in a world where that is. And there are things that can be done to change it. One piece being that obviously safe passage once someone's out of a war zone to a a place to claim asylum and keeping families intact or expediting the bureaucracies that keep them apart, expediting those processes. But there's also a key of children being able to enroll in school wherever they may be. So with Yasmin's family, Since she was not applying for asylum in Greece, but actually just interim in Greece trying to get to Germany, they were not allowed to go to school and they lived there for two years. So two years without your father to touch and two years without being in school, it's just too much. It's too large a piece of somebody's childhood. Not to do spoilers, but happily, I can tell you that Abdullah, the the roommate, Safwan's roommate in the film... He was granted asylum very quickly after we finished filming. The German government didn't respond to his appeal in time. And so he automatically was given. And he was able to bring his wife and children to Germany. And she's getting chemo treatment and doing quite well.
0: One of the techniques you seem to use, I would call close and far. So there are a lot of very intimate shots. And then there are shots that are further away. And they seem to play off each other and and reinforce each other in some way. In the Yasmin story, the, the close shot that really... Gets me is the one that's clearly inside the tent. You're clearly there with them. And they're talking about the trip, the horrible trip on the boat. How did you get those shots? How did you build that level of trust?
1: This is an incredibly intimate film. And that intimacy comes out of a lot of relationship building. So it's one thing to decide, okay, here are the themes we need. These are the locations we want to find families in. This is the makeup of the family we're looking for. But then it's absolutely about finding people who want to take part, who want to collaborate and who trust you and trust what your intentionality and in sharing this. And this was not a kind of film where I could say, hey, if only the world knew what you were going through, everything would change because there'd been news coverage of this for years and nothing was changing. So working through our Syrian team, we had two Syrian co-producers who worked across stories, but then... Because of the Syrian diaspora and that half the country had had to flee, we had Syrians who were often stuck themselves as refugees in every country we were filming in. In each chapter, we had a little team that really did deep dive research to identify families. And then once we had identified who we wanted to work with, started building relationships of trust. And our relationships predate the shooting and they continued after the shooting We're very committed to getting the right things on the screen, but also getting to them in the right way. And I think it shows, I think it's only because of that comfort level that they had with the team that we were allowed, that we were there and that they revealed because just because you're in the room doesn't mean anyone's actually going to share anything with you. And it's really about her. I don't even know that it was a conscious decision to experience those emotions, but it was just a comfort to be herself in the moment and to have that intimate conversation with her daughter while there was a crew there
0: too. And then after that shot, you have what I would call one of these longer shots. And the one that really stands out is shortly after this, Yasmin instructs her children to stay close to their sleeping area. And she makes her way apparently to the authorities to discuss housing and potentially asylum. And you shoot this Quite far away from her, it looks like you're across the highway. I think we see traffic between you and her, and we watch her quite a while. We track her moving as she makes her way. Why did you use this shot?
1: So, like you said, the close and far. That was a very conscious piece of this storytelling that I always wanted you to have a sense of place, but also a sense of like the globe spinning, right? That that this diaspora, that these stories we had chosen five vignettes, but the camera could have landed on the tent next to her and there would have dived in and and experienced another family's story. And so that just giving it always a reminder that these are very specific individuals with their own complex personalities and emotions and experiences, but they are part of something much larger. That this is our reality right now. Displacement, more people displaced than ever before in history. And without something changing radically, this is our future. And without being heavy handed about it, just, it felt like that pullback would constantly remind you that these very tender, quiet family scenes were happening on the globe somewhere.
0: Yeah. As you said, a lot of screen time is consumed by people waiting patiently and and quote unquote, not a lot happens, but. We know that there's conflagration going on in the background. We know the Syrian war is happening. You don't do some of the things that I've seen other documentaries do where, and I'm not knocking them for doing this. It's a different style. For example, you don't put up title cards. You don't do narration. You show a little bit, but you don't show a lot of news coverage. So you have to introduce the Syrian war from the side. Why did you choose to not exploit some of these other possibilities?
1: I think it's twofold. One is my focus really was on the experience of family so if it wasn't something they were talking about a lot it wasn't something i was going to insert into it and our point of entry was that parents trying to make life all right again rather than the specifics of the war the places that it came in again like it was because it was organically so the fathers in germany did speak more often about the political situation and their frustration with it it's sort of a dance of always giving, I find, like, Verite is this, like, constant balancing act between layering in enough information for people to be led to some of the right conclusions, for people who don't know to both know enough to be informed, to feel like they're in good hands with the director, that if they don't understand something, you've somehow signaled you don't need to. You know, just like we do when we walk into a fiction film that might be about a very serious topic, we don't expect a full introduction. Also, we were very keenly aware of when this film was meeting the world. It didn't meet the world exactly when we thought it would, you know, put some delays. You know, we weren't the first film out of the gate. We had no illusion about being the definitive telling of the Syrian experience. So it stands on the shoulders of other. News coverage and books and other films and other films about families during conflict and war that aren't Syrian. So all of that, like collectively, it's part of that body of work.
0: Another thing that might be a little surprising to viewers is technology, especially communications technology. From the very first shots, we see Yasmin holding her phone. We see Dia with the tablet. They're using these smartphones to communicate. And and we might be a little surprised about this sort of ubiquity again of technology. Were you surprised by that?
1: We shouldn't be, right? Here's my phone, right? It's just like everyone else on the planet. They're, you know, with maybe a handful of exceptions, but it had an absolutely life-saving critical role for much of the information about the routes to get out of Syria and to get from Turkey into the EU were all shared through text messages. And then families would be able to GPS one of our co-producers, he and his brothers, they had to put their... Mother in one of the smugglers' boats, and one brother was on the Turkey side, and one brother is on the Greece side, and she had a phone and they just stayed on. Just this absolutely life saving importance. And then when you think of all of us during COVID, how essential to our sense of connection when we couldn't physically touch the people we love having things like FaceTime and WhatsApp and Zoom was. So it had that role in their lives too. And you see there's a moment in the Greece chapter where they finished talking with dad and she only has 9% battery left. We had this great shot it for whatever reason, didn't make it in, of the charging center. We have a woman from the UN who, UN Undersecretary General, who focused on refugee issues a lot. And she was doing an introduction of the film for us. And she said, the people that cared really showed up to care and if there were like the woman you see the authority we were talking about the woman you see offering i guess, housing and so she's a volunteer from a greek organization that is just there trying to get good information to people who aren't finding the information they need so there was a lot of goodwill and then there was a lot of things that shouldn't have been as hard as they were too
0: I was going to bring up that 9%. The other moment is when Safa is like, where's my phone? I think we've all been there. (laughs) Obviously means more to them than it does to us. But I think it's very interesting that two of the things that bind the viewer, with the subjects of the film are obviously family, but then technology, our phones. We love our family. We love our phones. And that's a universal. The other one that really struck me was when they're going into the orphanage and they're basically saying, are you Team Messi or Team Ronaldo? And my twins, they split on that.
1: Oh, so great. You're our target audience. Then. <laughs> They're wrestling around, and she mentions John Cena, you know, so there is like this shared pop culture or sports culture. I, I love the the Missy line because I, I mean, at a much lower temperature, but I was a new kid in school. And I remember a teacher walking me into the classroom and presenting me and how much I would just didn't want to be in that moment. Like anything I could have done to get out of that moment. And I feel like on his face, he's like, OK, you asked me which player I like better. I'll tell you I'm a Missy guy, but that doesn't mean I want to be here. You know, like you just I feel like there's like this universal moment there where many of us have felt so uncomfortable, he's feeling it in a much more intense way with higher stakes. We're always looking for just these little points of entry, little points of connection. And and I do feel like the the observational verite style to a greater degree leaves room for a viewer to bring their own life experience into what's unfolding.
0: And one other one that really struck me is very early on, you have the soccer ball that's stuck and they have to get a piece of wood to knock the soccer ball down. And anyone who has kids has done that innumerable times.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: The film really draws you to those individual moments and images in a way which uh, is really powerful. So another question I want to ask you about is the question of beauty. This is a beautiful film. It's beautiful depiction of family in, in very troubled times. It's still beautiful. It's also aesthetically amazing. And at times I found this a little bit challenging. I want to talk to you about this. I'll pick a moment, which is when Samra is working in the fields and the other women who I assume are refugees are, are working with her and it's a field on a hill and they're making their way across and it's beautiful. And I think we are preconditioned as Westerners to see people working in the field. It's a motif that's very powerful for us. And at the same time, you suddenly experience it. Wow, beautiful shot. And then wait, these are women, probably all refugees, probably very poorly paid, doing backbreaking work for very long hours, have no leverage. And I was pulled between those two things. And I almost felt a little bit of, I'll be honest, a little bit of revulsion at my sense of, wow, this is beautiful. But H- how did you feel about that? How should we feel about that?
1: I think how you felt is right. It's that we should all feel it as we did. I mean, I'm glad that you progressed into the, what we had tried to position that scene in is you had already heard the dilemma she had you had already seen what she was missing out on right you had just been inside that tenderness that sacred space of family and home and she was gone from it we tried in the sound design and and the shots we chose of her like she's so bent over and it's so repetitive it's machine like she's just like weeding I guess for me it doesn't land as beautiful but it is visually compelling I don't know with Samra and and, and specifically, but that there may be moments when she's like the shot after that, where she's on the back of the truck and she's lost in thought looking out. She never said this to me, so I'm a little bit inclined, but I don't know that she doesn't also notice the beauty of her surroundings. It's just robbed from her the privilege of enjoying it without the burden of all of the choices and the absolutely... Backbreaking breaking work for not enough money to support her family. And so she has to miss out. I and mean, when she's a single mother, she has to miss on being with her family and still doesn't earn enough to provide for them. So yes, it's all of that layered together. I think throughout the film, we're trying to mix the beauty with the harshness and the darkness. And part of the reason you alluded to a, a little bit of news footage, there, there was both the moment where you see like the physical devastation of what war does to bodies and then for me also even though you don't visually see it the chapter in Syria with Dia when she's describing having seen the the impact of war on her son's feet of torture from the regime those really dark notes felt very important to the film that we couldn't just float along in this happy isn't it lovely that families love each other as much as they do and this is all tender and dappled light. These stories are also very harsh and there's some very dark things about humanity and what we do to each other in them.
0: Samra has a a very important decision to make. And I think, again, I think probably a lot of us think of refugees as victims and completely without agency, but she does have this moment. It's a very delimited, it's a very hard choice, but will she allow her son to continue to take care of her children or is she going to ask them to enter the orphanage? And and she really cares what Fayez has to say about this.
1: I have a very strong willed child. There's no just telling him what he's going to do either. I mean, I wish Fayez could have the innocence of not having the, those that the, knowing even that's a choice his mother's considering making. I do think that refugees in our film and the refugees that I know and have known from previous films I've done absolutely have agency we were trying to show just the absolute forward focus um, of all of these families. Yes, this has happened. Onward. How do we make it good again? In ways that are a little like more obvious, Omar in our U.S. chapter, just absolutely determined that his younger brother is going to stay in school. He's going to ha- go to a good school. He's going to be able to be a teenager. But each of the chapters has that forward focus. And with Samra, it was wrenching. There was no good option for her. And in the end, they decide not to go. So uh, you don't see that in the film, but they did. And it's been interesting after screenings that we've been lucky enough to have in person now, people who are very knowledgeable of these situations are divided. One saying, absolutely, that was the right decision. Family has to stay together at all costs. And then someone else who also has worked supporting refugees saying, except that (laughs) he doesn't get an education then. He doesn't get any time to go play with his friends. You know, is it the right decision? And I'm always attracted to issues and stories where it's not obvious what the right decision is, because so many of, of the things we have to grapple with in life don't have right and wrong answers. I was relieved when they decided not to leave the children at the center, but That was easy for me, maybe a bit romanticized. There was a reason she was even considering it. And it wasn't at all that she didn't want to wake up and go to sleep with her own children. It's just she didn't think they were safe when she was gone. And she thought they needed to be in school. And frustratingly, there weren't opportunities in the Turkish schools for them to go.
0: The final shot of the Yasmin arc is on the pier. It's just a wonderful moment of uh, young people jumping in the water and dancing. It's almost like they're recreating a little bit of Syria on that pier. Uh, and there's fireworks. To me, the fireworks seemed like they were rhyming with the balloons, like reaching out to the sky and aspirational. But one of my sons said, wouldn't fireworks also remind them of war
1: I'm with your son. It was like a nightclub up on the hill above the pier. It was somebody's birthday and they were putting off fireworks. When we were looking at what was playing across people's faces in reaction, it was a mix of all of that. It was a mix of, wow, this is beautiful and surprising and exciting. And we've, we've felt that before. I I went to school in DC and whenever like the presidential helicopters would come up and they'd fly really low. I know I had some classmates who had been in war zones. You don't let go of that. It's like really shakes you to the core when you've seen that. So I hopefully exactly where you and your son landed is what we were intending. There's sort of a, a shift that happens on Yasmin's face. It's there subtly, hopefully enough for people to to at least think back. They've experienced these kinds of explosions in very different ways.
0: Many of these people have experienced trauma. As you approach them, how do you think about not re-traumatizing them
1: these were incredibly fragile situations we were inserting ourselves into as i was talking about the little cruise we had it was so vitally important that the syrians who are our co-producers across stories but and our field producers on the ground were people who had been through this themselves so the approach to the families um, and the discussion of what we were wanting to do was coming from someone who had been through it and our conversations were about there was never any okay now you've decided you're in there's no turning back it was always in the spirit of at any given time you can tell us I always do like a hand signal I don't speak Arabic so I don't want it to have to go through translation so I establish a hand signal no questions asked we stop it doesn't mean we're not going to like want to sit down without gear and talk about okay how can we pick this up again but they're in charge it's just all trust like this film doesn't work without trust and I think because of the verite style that we weren't provoking any of the conversations. so there wasn't interviews there wasn't subjects that we said you must discuss this that and the other I mean we ask a lot of questions before the camera's rolling like on the days before we're filming we ask like do you ever call home? Where are your siblings? Have you looked for assistance? So we have all of these ideas of what might happen. And I'm able to talk through with the crew. We had three different camera people on this American, Danish, and Syrian about what I'm looking for in those moments, what the point of view is, but it's all set up that we can just sort of follow the flow. So it really leaves the people more in charge you're inserting yourself into the life of someone who's gone through intense pain. So there's no way to know 100% that the experience of it, of sharing it isn't going to be traumatic or troubling. I I could never say that. All you can do is always be a human being first and a filmmaker second and bring people onto the crew and into their lives who are sensitive and respectful. It's a trust and our job too is to do our job as well as we can. I was talking with Dia, the mom in in Syria recently, but I was thanking her for her trust in us and sharing her son's story. And she said, now you get that film out as widely as you can. I want everyone to know about my son. You tell everyone about my son. And so it is their choice to, to do this and to share. And they get to decide at every juncture how much they're revealing to us. You just have to be incredibly human and respectful about it at every turn and question yourself at every turn.
0: Can you just talk just a little bit about what you had to do to get Dia's story? I know there were some technical challenges there.
1: I think there were logistic and safety challenges. Half of Syria has been forced to flee, half stayed behind. I felt like it was fundamentally important to include a story of a family that was still there. One of the things that I found most wrenching as I researched and got to know more about the Syrian experience is this tactic that predates the uprising of the Assad regime forcibly disappearing and detaining and murdering anyone who dissented, and people just caught randomly at checkpoints. And so I felt like the experience of a parent not knowing whether their child was alive or not knowing whether they were being tortured or whether they would ever return felt really fundamental, really hard, but really fundamental to include. We worked with one of our advisors, is a, a Syrian woman named Noura Ghazi, who's a human rights lawyer whose own husband was detained and eventually killed by Assad. She works with families of detainees and We tried to navigate how we could include that storyline. And we looked at families who were already outside of Syria but who had to leave behind. And it felt really important to have it still be someone inside. But because this story is so driven by very intimate faces and conversations, it couldn't be somebody in blacked out or just their voice. And so we really worked hard, and it was pretty clear that. I wasn't going to go for my own safety, but also predominantly, it would be so risky for the crew and for any family that we would have depicted. And so we ended up choosing to focus on a family whose son was taken by ISIS, not by the Assad regime, which gave them a little bit of more flexibility. There also had already been public about his disappearance. They're they, part of a group called Families for Freedom that's connected to the Syria campaign, really great organization that does a lot of work trying to elevate that storyline. And so it gave us a way to feel like we could responsibly share her story. But then we worked with two Syrian women from Damascus who are accredited in the film under pseudonyms who really built that relationship. And it's the first time in filmmaking that I have not personally been in the room. We did hundreds of WhatsApp and Skype calls. And I went to Beirut and and workshopped with them and we would get footage smuggled out and send it to New York and do long sessions of feedback. But I never had my feet in Dia's living room and it's their relationship building with her and her husband that made that chapter possible. And when I was talking with Dia, she was wanting to like updates. She was matchmaking for each of them and everything. So it's a relationship.
0: Obviously filmmaking is a communal activity. Is there anyone you want to thank for their contribution to the film?
1: Absolutely, documentary filmmaking is such a team sport and this was a massive collaboration undertaking. Half of all of Syria has had to flee and we benefited from that in having an amazing team of Syrian co-producers and field producers, advisors all working on the film. So really it's hard to say like, the most fundamental collaboration are the families in the film who trusted us and chose to work with us and chose to share. And then second would be the Syrians who decided that I had something to say about their and their country's experience that was worthy of their time and their energies.
0: I wouldn't say your film is openly about advocacy, but I I certainly can imagine someone watching your film or hearing us today may want to help.
1: Sure. There's layers to that, right? So on one level, when you read about conflict, remember that this is what's happening in very specific ways and very predictable and universal ways. Lives and families are being torn apart. I make social issue documentaries and I love it when they spur action. I do think the most profound things we do with our storytelling are changing hearts and minds in ways we can never measure and never know about. But that being said, we're working with a group called the Karm Foundation, K-A-R-A-M, which is a Syrian-led organization based here in the U.S., but working on the Turkey-Syria border and a bit in the U.S. that is really investing in the future of young Syrians who have been displaced. So trying to ensure that we don't have a lost generation. And And I think it's that. And then I think it's like as refugees and immigrants come to your community, very often it's just an opportunity, like the educational background doesn't fit a human resources document, but there's like these wildly skilled people. So just being willing to be a little bit creative and take the time to get to know someone and offer job opportunities, educational opportunities, or just friendship, neighborly welcome. And I hope that's something that the film has such a powerful universality, I I hope, comes through for you. And, you know, as once again, the U.S. is a country that's welcoming refugees. Biden has has promised to increase to 125,000, which it hasn't been there in a very long time, along with a lot of Afghan families that are coming not officially as refugees. So we're going to have newcomers in communities all across the country, as we always have.
0: Thank you. It's a a beautiful film. It's a highly evocative film. It's meaningful. It's moving. I would recommend that people see it with their children because I think it's a great education in the world. So thank you very much for being here today.
1: Well, thank you. I I love when you're like, oh, I didn't think about the fireworks and the balloons, but now I do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary film that you think doesn't get the attention it deserves?
1: I have a documentary film for every day of the week that I don't think got the attention it deserved. A film that was really powerful for me that I had a very small role on is a film called Sing Faster by John Else, who's a master filmmaker, Bay Area, was a mentor to me, as a friend. But Sing Faster looked at Wagner's ring cycle from the point of view of the stagehands. And it's just immersive, a joy to watch, but it's totally profound at the same time.